Good morning, church. It's good to be back, uh, at least back for me. I'm not sure, maybe some first-time visitors here this morning, but this is our second visit, uh, just my wife and I this time. Last time here, we had a, a bit of a interesting complication with my youngest who decided to vomit in the bathroom. Uh, thankfully, that hasn't happened today. But uh, I do want to say, just in terms of, I don't know, I love being a Presbyterian, but sometimes we get too caught up in propriety. I'm not trying to break any decorum by wearing my coat. Um, if you've ever had, I don't know, it wasn't a traumatic experience per se, but it was a memorable experience. You know how sometimes things happen in life that you never forget or they stick with you. Uh, years ago, I was preaching at a church. It was actually a church where I had, had grown and been discipled. And as I was being introduced, I was coming up and one of the elders was leaving. He said, make sure you take off your jacket. Like somehow I wouldn't be preaching effectively if I were wearing my jacket. I said, brother, I love you, but I'm cold. I mean, let me wear my coat. So my blood is thin since we've lived in California for quite a few years. I'm from the Northeast originally, but a little bit chilly. So I just hope that you don't think I'm breaking any rules of decorum by wearing my jacket. Uh, We're going to look this morning at Luke chapter 1. This is the Magnificat. Uh, Magnificat is simply uh, from the Latin phrase of Mary, my soul magnifies the Lord. This is the song of Mary from Luke chapter 1. Uh, was doing some thinking and, and meditating on this passage recently in, um, in God's providence. I wasn't even thinking in the moment, but hey, it's, it's the Christmas season and this fits uh, for the time of year. Of course, it fits any time of year, but specifically in the modern West, it fits. So I'll read beginning at verse 39, where Mary visits Elizabeth as she is pregnant with John the Baptist at that point. Uh, and then our sermon focus is going to be verses 46 through 56. So give attention now to the Word of God. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town of Judah, in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. 
grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Pop quiz. Define faith. Can you? Have you thought about it? We talk about faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but what is faith? How would you define it? How would you explain it? How do you understand it? What about faith would you say is important? Well, to answer that question, we say simply that we are saved by grace through faith. Faith is the means that God uses to redeem us. Beyond that, saving faith in Jesus specifically has three parts. Knowledge, assent, and trust. Saving faith, so if you're taking notes, knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge It's not just any knowledge, but it's right knowledge. In order for your faith to be a saving faith, it has to be grounded in truth, reality, history. You might sincerely believe in something that happens to be wrong. Think of myths, mythological ideas, whether they're legendary, like Santa, or the Easter Bunny, or the Tooth Fairy. You can believe in something sincerely, but if what you believe in is false or does not exist, then your faith in that thing is worthless because the object of your faith is non-existent. What's the point? It's a story. It's a fairy tale. Jesus isn't a fairy tale. Jesus isn't just a nice story. Faith is not superstition. It's not belief in luck. It's not belief in chance. It's not happenstance or serendipity. It's Jesus. So that's knowledge. And there's assent. Assent is God gave us minds. He gave us heads. He gave us the ability to reason. Some people would say, well, faith excludes reason. I say faith is grounded in reason because God is the God of rationality. God is the God of the things that make sense. God is the God of this world that works in an orderly way that we can count on. We can expect that Uh, The sun will rise, the sun will set, the earth will turn, the planets will revolve, the universe operates according to the laws of physics that God has ordained and established. So, for example, if you say, I believe that Abraham Lincoln was shot by John Wilkes Booth, you affirm what history teaches and you affirm that you believe it. That's knowledge, that's assent. Okay, I believe it, sure, that happened. But then comes trust. Now, remember what the scripture says, uh, what James says in chapter 2, verse 19 about the demons. The demons believe that there is a God. And what do they do? They shudder. They tremble. They're afraid. They're fearful. Their trust is that God will judge them because they don't believe him. They don't follow him. They don't love him. They don't honor him. The demons know and believe that Jesus is the son of God, but that makes them scared instead of comforted because... They want nothing to do with God. They want to live according to their own dictates, according to their own rules, according to their own laws. They want to do what they want to do when they want to do it, and they don't want to suffer any consequences for it. As Christians, we're not interested in trying to just pull the wool over people's eyes or just give intellectual assent to the fact that God exists, but we believe in God. We trust in God. 
even when that trust is difficult to have. So in essence, saving faith is belief plus trust. A little analogy. Um, analogies are not always perfect. That's why they're called analogies. But a little analogy is to think of a tightrope walker who's crossing, I don't know, I think there was a guy years ago, he crossed the Twin Towers in uh, New York City. Uh, there was one who did Niagara Falls as well. So think of a tightrope walker who crosses uh, a, a great height while juggling riding a unicycle and with a blindfold. You've seen it. You know he can do it. And he asks, do you think I could cross while pushing a wheelbarrow at the same time with someone in it? You think, boy, this guy's really skilled. I've seen what he can do. Is it probably, he's a pretty skilled tightrope walker. Then he asks, will you get in the wheelbarrow? Well, not so much. I believe he can do it. I think he can do it, but I'm not willing to put my life in his hands. I'm not willing to trust my life with this tightrope walker. Now, of course, God is not a tightrope walker, and faith is not just the same thing as getting in a wheelbarrow, but the point is made is that for many, it's fine to believe that God exists as long as that doesn't endanger your life, as long as it doesn't require any extra effort on your part, as long as there aren't any consequences for that faith or for that belief. The minute that things get difficult, the minute that things get hard, the minute that things, something happens that you weren't expecting or you didn't count on, then you're going to say, well, no, maybe God isn't for me. When God seems absent and your life seems to be a wreck from which there is no return, when it's time to put your theology into practice, your theology into action, what do you do? What will you do? Mary's song here demonstrates the kind of saving faith that we want to emulate. She is an example for us to follow. Everything she's done to this point in the story shows us what our response should be, should be when God calls us. It is trust. It is obedience. She's showing the reality of her faith proclamation by living it out. And in her song, she praises God for three things. These are the points this morning. God, she praises God's word, praises God for his word to her, for his work in the world, and for his work in the church. For his word to her, for his work in the world, and for his work specifically in the church. And by church, we're just talking about the believing community. So again, Mary is... An example, an example of humility, an example of faithful obedience. Now, in the first century, if you know anything about the first century, being a woman uh, wasn't necessarily what a modern person would call ideal. Uh, the testimony of a woman was not considered relevant in civil disputes. They are often expected to be one among many wives in a household. And they were relatively sheltered, working in the home, not doing very much else, but waiting on husband and children. Now, that was the ancient Near East. But what happened in the economy of God's plan of redemption, things are never going to be perfect. But God gave a voice to women. God gave a specific role and a purpose to women in the church that cannot be overlooked. I mean, think of Proverbs 31, the Proverbs 31 woman, right? I'm going to probably read that in a few weeks as... 
the congregation reads through the book of Proverbs. Uh, Miriam leads the praise of God's people in Exodus chapter 15. Hannah's example of prayer in 1 Samuel 2. Deborah's leadership in Judges chapter 5 and the wisdom of Abigail in 1 Samuel 25. That's really an interesting story. That happened to be a story that my father-in-law preached as our wedding sermon, which I'm not sure what to think of that because the husband of Abigail was Nabal, which means fool. So and that's something that I won't forget. We didn't have our wedding recorded, but I will remember the sermon text for that message. Um, my father-in-law would get along well, no issues there. But Abigail saved her husband's life. She saved her husband's estate. She saved uh, uh, her husband's workers by her intervention to King David before he tried to take personal vengeance upon Nabal for his disrespect. And when Jesus rose from the dead, it was the two Marys and some other women who were the first ones to testify about his resurrection. So here early in the Gospel of Luke, we see the universal appeal of Jesus, young, old, men, women, hurting, oppressed, poor, all experience joy, all experience satisfaction when the long-awaited Savior arrives. And I will just say, not to throw things in there that aren't necessarily there, um, I was raised a Roman Catholic and there were certain beliefs about Mary in the Roman Catholic Church that are not biblical. Uh, Mary refers to Jesus as what? My Lord, my Savior. She was a sinner in need of redemption just like the rest of us. She occupied a special place in the history of redemption as the theotokos, the Greek word for God-bearer, the one who carried Jesus in her womb, but she was still one in need of redemption. She was still one in need of the salvation that that Savior offered to his people. Her song, I mentioned Hannah, is, is very reminiscent of Hannah's song, Hannah Prayed for a Child, in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And here we have a song about a miraculous pregnancy brought to a woman uh, who to this point, I mean, Hannah was barren up to that point. She had not been able to have children. Um, now being raised and instructed in Jewish law, Mary was young at this point. History, scholars, I've seen anywhere ages anywhere from 12 to 16. Now typically in, in that culture, it was common to be betrothed to a husband at 12. That doesn't necessarily mean the marriage was consummated at that point. But somewhere around 12 to 16, it was typical to be betrothed and ultimately to get married and begin bearing children and raising a family. Mary is young, and, and she may be poor, she may be humble, she may be of low estate, but she's raised and instructed in the Jewish law. She's raised and instructed in the Jewish faith. And so we really see for this young woman, even at the age of 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, an example of faith and humility to look up to, to emulate to respect and to honor. And it's almost basically a compilation of, of Old Testament Psalms. If you look at the cross-references in your Bibles, you'll see uh, just about every verse is connected in some way to the Psalter. Some lines are direct quotations. Mary knew her Bible, and she sang her Bible. And that knowledge informed her response to God and the fulfillment of His promise. And up to this point, of course, in the history of, of redemption, in the history of the church, it had been probably 400 years from Malachi to the book of Matthew. So about 400 years since God had spoken audibly to his people, since God had showed himself uh, actively involved physically in their lives. 
but Mary, uh, she was ready, willing, and able to serve when God called. Not making excuses, not complaining. God, where have you been? What have you been doing? We've been looking for you. We've been waiting. You know, when, when uh, Zechariah heard, he's like, no, this can't be real. This isn't right. And the angel's like, you know what? You're, you're mute for nine months. You say nothing. Zechariah's response to the word of the angel was unbelief. And he had a little bit of a punishment for it. Mary's response is, may it be to me as you say. Mary's response, again, an example to the church is a response of faith. And so Mary is kind of like, I don't know, not to be crass, but she's like a soda can. You know, uh, my youngest, when he, he doesn't really understand the concept yet of shaking soda when it's still sealed, when the cap is still on, or when the can hasn't yet been opened. If you shake a can of soda and then you open it, it's going to explode all over. Well, that's kind of Mary. She's, she's, she's to this point where she's like the shaking can of soda, and so she wants to burst forth in praise because of what she sees, what she's heard, how it culminates. And, and, and John the Baptist in, her, in, in the belly of Elizabeth leaping in the womb for joy. And Mary just, she bursts with praise. Recognizing a new aspect of God that she had never before experienced. Uh, meditation on the word and the work of God can help to increase our faith. And Hebrews uh, chapter 10 through 12, it speaks about faith and endurance. Faith and endurance. Uh, endurance spoken of through a cloud of witnesses who trusted God in difficult times. When you think of endurance, <clears throat> it says uh, in Hebrews 12, it speaks about the runner, running the race with endurance. I'm a runner. I'm a runner who happens to get older. I'm still trying to maintain my pace and speed from years ago, and each day it gets more and more difficult. It gets harder and harder to maintain that. So we need endurance. And how do you get endurance? By eating right, getting rest, strengthening your body, doing certain exercises, stretching, those kinds of things. How do you get endurance as a Christian? By being in God's Word, by meditating upon the Word, by being in prayer with God, by studying and knowing who He is, by growing in the faith, by growing in maturity, growing in knowledge, growing in wisdom. It doesn't end. We run the race. And the cloud of witnesses who struggled and suffered in Hebrews testifies to us of the truth of the faith. Even after his apparent absence, Mary sees God at work and working through her as a humble servant. We read that in uh, Proverbs 25. I'm going to go back to that uh, because that was read this morning. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of the noble. So that is the humility of Mary with which she responds to the call of God. Now, some confuse humility with self-loathing or shame. Oh, I'm so worthless. I'm so terrible. God could never use a person like me. Or sort of a false sense of nobility. But what true humility does is it recognizes at the same time both sin and salvation from that sin. You'll notice that the vows spoken this morning, it didn't end with justly deserving the displeasure of God. 
It continues with the Savior from that sin, the Savior from God's displeasure. God has chosen us as a treasured people for his own possession. He has promised never to leave us. He has promised never to forsake us. He remembers his mercy to us. He delights in us, Scripture says. He comforts us. He rejoices in being our God. God takes pleasure in us. We are his children. Mary's blessing is experienced to the point where she says, all generations will call me blessed. Verse 48. God is her Savior from judgment, just like he is our Savior from judgment. And again, her recognition, her understanding that all generations will call her blessed is not to say that she has some special access to God that we don't, or she's particularly blessed Uh, in a fundamental way beyond us. Again, she carried our Lord, but she's still a sinner in need of grace. It's a recognition of the glory of God in choosing a poor and humble wife of a village carpenter from a nowhere town to be the mother of God in the flesh. She had no delusions of grandeur. She understood who she was and who God is. Generations will call her blessed, not because of who she is, because of what God has done and of how God has honored her. For he who is mighty has done great things to me, verse 49, and holy is his name. So that's God's praise, praise for his word to her. Now we see praise for his work in the world, verses 50 to 53. She confesses the utter holiness of God, but at the same time she understands that his mercy is on those who fear him. He is a holy God to be feared of judgment if you do not repent. But she understands that he is a God of grace and mercy who offers repentance through the Son. And she is in a great position to understand this. This woman carries in her belly the Son of God. She carries in her womb the Savior. In her womb is the DNA of the one who shows mercy for a lost and wicked world. In her womb is the fulfillment of God's promise to not judge us for our sin, but to save us, to give us, to provide the promise of forgiveness, the promise of new life, the one who can declare us righteous before God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is really a powerful scripture. For our sake, God loves us. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Think about that. In Christ, we are the righteousness of God. I really want you to let that sink in for a moment. 2 Corinthians 5.21, in Christ, we are the righteousness of God of God. That's so counterintuitive to a self, self-loathing culture or a culture that wants to find meaning and purpose and identity uh, in, in something other than God. In Christ, we are the righteousness of God. The one 
Christ is who will pay the penalty for Mary's sins for the sins of the entire world. Now, the scripture says rain falls on both the just and the unjust. God is gracious to the believer and the unbeliever. God is gracious to all sinners. He's especially gracious, gracious to his children, but he is gracious to all. But it is only in Christ that we can have the certainty brought by faith. The certainty of faith. The hope. You know, the difference between biblical hope and worldly hope. Biblical hope is sure. Biblical hope is certain. Biblical hope is going to happen at some point when God determines it. Worldly hope is, I hope I get that job. I hope I get an interview. I hope this happens. You don't know. But hope in Christ born by faith, is certain, is assured, it will come to pass. Jesus is going to come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And in Christ, we have certainty that our blessings are not just temporary, but eternal forever, because we are the righteousness of God in Christ. Mary tells us in these verses 51 to 53, that uh, God has shown strength with his arm, uh, with power by which he has humbled the proud and exalted the humble. And God's providence, it is often his glory to work contrary to our expectations. You ever thought of that? God works in ways that we don't expect. We should expect God to do the unexpected. We should expect God to work in ways that we're not planning for him to work. The incarnation, the bodily coming of the Son of God was not according to anyone's expectation. It wasn't fanfare. It wasn't parades. It wasn't his birth in a kingly palace surrounded by riches uh, uh, and, and, and fanfare and pomp and circumstance. He was born and set in a manger to a poor farming family in the middle of nowhere. No red carpet, no parades, no news cameras. No grand celebrations. Now the celebrations from heaven were real. The singing songs of the angels. The praise from the shepherds. God works in ways that we don't expect, and that is to his glory. And what we see is different about Jesus. You know, most kings, dictators, they expect their people to die for them. But what does our king do? He dies for us. He gives us new life by his death. The wicked, the proud, the arrogant that Mary speaks about, they are the rulers who take advantage of them, the, their subjects, but they themselves become subjects, become subject to the wrath of God. Mary speaks here both what God has done in history past and what he's going to do in, he, uh, in the future when he comes in judgment. Whatever authority exists on earth, it is ordained by God, and that authority is called to bow and submit to his power. No earthly king can stand against God. No amount of pride or influence or self-assurance by which we think we stand can uphold us in the day that God's arm of judgment comes to knock down the proud and the careless. Now contrasted against the, the proud, the mighty, the rich are, on the other hand, those who are humble and hungry and poor. 
Now, distinction to be made, just because you might be humble, hungry, and poor doesn't mean that somehow you have unique access to God's blessings, right? You get up and don't have breakfast, that doesn't mean God is necessarily going to bless you because of that. Don't get confused. It's referring to God's love for those who are of low estate. It's talking about a spiritual humility, a spiritual uh, need that we have. And, you know, of course, if you're humble, you're not going to boast about it and tell others, look how humble I am. I'm the most humble person I know. Uh, I thank you, God, that I'm not like that wicked sinner over there. Thank you, God, that I'm better. You know, just think things that we might think about that we might think but not say. But the scripture speaks about God's delight in saving those and blessing those whom the world would just as soon overlook and forget about. Prisoners, orphans, widows, the poor, the hungry, the lame, the blind, those suffering, those who are rejected. God specifically has an affinity for those who are lowly in the world. God has a love for those who are not considered glorious by worldly standards. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Without faith, the message of the cross is dumb. But to us who are being saved, to us with faith, it shows us it is the power of God. Recognizing who God is and what he has done, our response should not be shame or jealousy, but humility and joy. Humility should lead us to gratitude. It should lead us to praise as we reflect on who we are because of who God is and what he has done for us. You have a new identity in Christ. You have a new life. Live like it. Honor God with that new life. Give him the praise and the glory and the honor for what he has done for you. And that leads to verses 54 to 56, praise for his work in the church. Uh, again, she's the one bearing the promised seed in her womb, so she would know and understand God's work in the church in a very unique way. And this is the promise made to Adam, the promise confirmed in the covenants with Abraham and with Moses. It seems slow that God would take so long to complete his promises. But Peter says, with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. God understands time differently than we do. All right, we want things quickly. We're the microwave and internet society. Give me what I want and give it to me now. Or the driving society, driving this morning, you know, a little traffic jam, nothing major. But you see people's personalities come out when the way they drive. I want to get there fast. I want to get there first. I want to get to that red light before anyone else so I can stop first and wait with everyone else at the same time. I mean, come on. Slow down. It's okay. You'll get there. But God is faithful to his promise and shows that faithfulness through the patriarchs into Mary's day. 
the deeds that Mary has been praising God for have meaning for the church and result in her, his help for his servant Israel. Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Now, the word there for servant is used other places for a child. Makes sense. We're children of God. And if your child is in distress or in pain, you're going to help that child. I remember years ago, my oldest, when he was, I think he was three, maybe two, got his fingers caught in the door or window of a car and immediately sprang into action to free him from his pain and from his trial. So we see here a picture of a loving father giving help to his people in the coming of the Messiah. God may not come when we want or act in the time that we want, but he will act in the right time in the best way. And his help comes not because we deserve it, but in remembrance of his own mercy. Now think about that deservingness. Again, the, the vows don't stop at justly deserving his displeasure. Um, over the years, I've heard so many people, Christians especially, say, I say, hey, how you doing, brother? How you doing, sister? Better than I deserve. And a, 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 a fellow believer in a Reformed church recently said that to me. And so I said to him, what do you deserve? And so he wasn't expecting that response. He wasn't expecting me to say that. And I said, you're in Christ. What do you deserve? In Christ, you are the righteousness of God. We're not Eeyore moping around. Oh, life is terrible. Woe is me. Better than I deserve. You deserve the blessing from God in Christ. You deserve the love of God, the joy of God, the presence of God, the favor of God, because you are a child of God. So that better than I deserve, that almost betrays, and I, and I, I know people who say it, they, they mean well. You know, God is gracious to me. And, and ultimately, sure, none of us deserve the love of God. He gives it freely of his own grace. Ephesians 2, it is a gift given freely so that none may boast. Don't get me wrong. But now you're in Christ. Who are you? What is your identity? What is your purpose? What is your meaning? What is, your, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of, of men and women in Christ? Ultimately, it's heaven. Heavenly worship. Rejoicing in His presence. And it is guaranteed you now by virtue of what Jesus has done for you. God has laid claim to you. God has taken ownership of you and called you his own. You are now the righteousness of God in Christ. So however you're doing, you're doing just as you deserve because God loves you. Because God cares for you. Because God wants to be with you in glory. He has chosen you as his own special treasured possession in accordance with this promise from Genesis chapter 3. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, and that is what Jesus did at the cross. The seed of the woman from Eve all the way through Mary came and crushed the head of the serpent. 
Sometimes we get so wrapped up in our shame or our feelings of worthlessness or insignificance that we question God's love for us. But understand that God cannot forget his patience. God cannot forget his mercy. Now, we're impatient people. Driving, we show our, our impatience. I'll be the first one to say I'm guilty of impatient driving. Getting better as I get older, I slow down a little bit, but I'm still, I can be a bit of a jerk. I'm sorry. But God, in his patience and remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever, God remembers his love for us. God remembers his grace. God remembers his promise to his people. And he shows that forth in the coming of Jesus. When God makes a promise, and I used to say when I was a kid, you know, you'd either cross your fingers behind your back when you tell someone something, because I promise. Or you say, promises are like pie crusts. They're made to be broken. You know, stupid stuff like that. But when God makes a promise, he keeps his promise. His word does not fail. He made the promise to Adam thousands of years ago, to Abraham thousands of years ago, to Moses thousands of years ago, and to their seed forever. And we are that seed. We're evidence that the promises of God have been fulfilled in Christ because we are the seed of Abraham, if not by physical descent as Jews, by spiritual descent as children of God. We're spiritual descendants of Abraham. He who received that same promise of God and took it in by faith is our spiritual father. We are evidence of God's mercy. And so Mary, in a real sense, is singing to God about us. He has helped his servant Israel, the Church of Grace PCA in Fresno, California, or wherever you find yourselves today. He has remembered his mercy. And the final verse here then concludes with Mary. Uh, she leaves right around the time of John's birth. Verse 56, she ran about three months and returned to her home. Now, why did Mary leave? We can probably take some guesses. Uh, it would have been a crowded house with a new baby, certainly, and Mary's got to get back at some point because she's got her own, her own baby growing in her womb. Um, maybe she wanted to avoid the potential gossip about a pregnancy and betrothal. She's not married and she's pregnant. <gasps> Scandal! Scandalous! This woman of the church is pregnant and she's not married. In fact, Joseph, at one point, found out what was going on. He's like, I better divorce her. You know, he was going to do it quietly. But he didn't think he could handle it until the angel intervened. Uh, conflict. Uh, in that regard, uh, a conflict would not have been pleasant for anyone. We know uh, later on from Luke that Elizabeth's family was not above sharing their opinions about personal matters. One of my favorite all-time sitcoms is Everybody Loves Raymond. Marie Barone the uh, quintessential invasive mother-in-law. I shouldn't even say mother-in-law necessarily, just mother. Not that all mothers are like this, but of course the sitcom portrays this woman as, uh, you know, she wants to get her way and she wants to make sure you know that she's going to get her way and she doesn't care how she's going to make you feel about it. Well, Elizabeth's family were very intrusive invasive when it comes to naming John. Like, oh, no, he can't be named John. There's nobody in the family named like, like that. We're not going to do that. It's not your business. Let the family name the kid what they want to give him the name. In fact, we joked when our kids were born, we would never tell my family 
what the names are going to be because we didn't want their uninvited opinions. In fact, one time I told my dad, uh, he passed away earlier this year, but I told him uh, that our firstborn was going to be Guillermo Slade. Just messed around. We're Mexican, so, you know, I figured I could get away with a Guillermo a little bit. Uh, but it was, of course, it was a silly name. We didn't want to tell them. It wasn't up to them to decide the child's name. So maybe Mary just wanted to get away from any potential family conflict. So in closing, you know, we walk by faith, brothers and sisters. We walk by faith, not by sight. And that's what faith is. We don't see it. Hebrews 11 characterizes faith. It doesn't define faith, but it characterizes it. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The, the certainty, the assurance of things that are unseen. We know these things to be true. God testifies to them for us by his spirit. The righteous shall live by faith, Habakkuk says. And of course, it does not affect the reality of the promise of God. It doesn't affect uh, who God is. And so if God calls us to get in that proverbial wheelbarrow, that I mentioned earlier, how are you going to respond? Because by faith, sometimes God may challenge you to do something or go a certain way. You know, in our culture today, there's this idea of the theology of, of being fired, which in the modern West, it's getting more and more difficult to maintain a conviction of following Jesus in a society that's all about diversity or inclusion. It's almost like we're including everybody but the Christians. And I don't want to say, you know, a, a false idea of, of um, martyrdom. But if you need to stand up for Jesus and it's going to cost you something, are you going to do it? Sometimes we may not know until the moment. But to walk by faith means we're ready for that challenge. We're ready for that trial. We're ready for that unexpected way of God working. And the question, what do God's promises mean to you? Are they the house built on the sand or are they house built on the rock, on a firm foundation? If the three little pigs came and blew in your Christian house, would it fall or would it stand? God's promises are sure. They are certain. And they are for those who are hurting, for those who are struggling, for those who are suffering, for those who are looking for purpose and for identity. And this world is filled with people who are looking for purpose. This world is filled with people who are looking for identity and meaning. What is my place in this world? What usefulness do I have? And how can I find that usefulness? So they go with the winds of the culture. Whatever the culture says is popular, that's what we're going to do. We're going to identify like this today. We're going to identify like that. We're going to seek our meaning and our purpose and whatever feels good in the moment. And that's not the way that God would have it. You know, it's like the, the ship in the ocean. Whichever way the winds and the waves are blowing, that's where you're going to end up. But Christ is the anchor who holds us firm in the storms. You know, some people have that bumper sticker, God is my co-pilot, like he's along for the ride. No, God is the captain. He's steering the ship. He is in charge. He is in control. He's not sitting at your side saying, 
hey, uh, you got this? Because if you don't, I'll, I'll jump in. God is in control. God is taking care of it. God is working out his purposes. And so God, if you're suffering, if you're hurting, if you're struggling, if you're depressed, God is there for you. The people of God should be there for you too. But understand the people of God are also hurting, are also suffering, are also struggling. There's no perfect people. There's no perfect church. And you know the old saying, if you find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. We're all temporary travelers getting from a place that is not our home, waiting and traveling to the home that is to come. And God brings light. He brings freedom. He brings joy and purpose and peace that the world will never be able to provide you. The world is a veneer. The world is a mirror. The world is fake. The world is going to sell you lies. But God is faithful and true. God does what we think is impossible. Very few, if any, much less Mary, expect God to work when and how he does. I mean, imagine God coming to you and saying, you're going to be the mother of the Savior. You know, Isaiah just randomly popped into my head. He was called to prophesy naked for a while. You're like, what? That's nuts. God works in ways that we don't expect. Whatever is to his glory and honor and praise. And the scripture says in the Proverbs, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It is the glory of kings to search it out. We humbly must submit to the work and to the call of God as the church. We praise him and thank him for being faithful, for being loving, for being merciful, for in his patience, remembering his mercy. So church, be encouraged and being recipients of the grace and the mercy of God, of being recipients of the love of God and being called those who are righteous in Christ. We are the righteousness of God. Again, I can't emphasize that enough. We are the righteousness of God in Christ to the glory of his name. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for he who came, who lived and died, who rose again, who ascended on high, and who is coming again in glory at the final judgment to make all things new. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your faithfulness to your church, not just to Grace PCA, but to all the churches throughout all the nations, throughout all history. You are the faithful God who remembers his mercy. And we thank you for the words from Mary that remind us that you bring low the proud and you exalt the humble. So Lord, remind us daily of humility. Remind us daily of your grace. Remind us daily of your love and your favor. And encourage us in our walk with you as we remember who you are because of what you've done for us. As we remember who Christ is, who we are in Christ the righteousness of God. We praise you. We glorify you in your holy name once and forever. In the name of Christ, we ask your blessings 
as we continue to worship. Amen.